0: Hello, Wabesiole, with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRX. This week, we conclude our series on African musical legends with a look back at the life and career of one of Africa's most influential drummers, maestro and composer, Tony Allen. And remember, you can hear our entire African legends series at afropop.org.
1: Recognize that drummer? Well, I bet you do. That's the inimitable Nigerian maestro Tony Allen from his 2010 session with Hugh Masekela, released in 2020 on the album Rejoice. was the last of over 20 albums Tony Allen released under his own name over his six decade career. And of course, there were also dozens of collaborations with Fela Kuti, the king of Afrobeat, and many many others. We lost Tony on April 30th, 2020, very suddenly at age 79. It was a shock felt around the world. with you on AfroPop Worldwide from PRX. Today we remember the life and career of Tony Allen, one of the greatest drummers of the past century.
0: The world has definitely lost an icon, but we've gained a forever legend. There is no going through the history of music without mentioning Tony Allen. Even though he's not with us anymore, we'll continue to treasure every stroke of the drumstick he ever gave this world of ours.
2: I think in my life, there have only been a few times where I was in a situation where I could really learn a lot. And working with him as a musician and learning about rhythm was definitely one of the highlights.
0: This guy ain't playing no drum. He's just having fun. He's so relaxed. I look at him, I'm like, I wish all the drummer can play like that. He was one of my favorite people on earth. He gave so much of his time and love and wisdom. I wouldn't be where I am today, honestly, if I hadn't met Tony. Simple as that. He's one of the greatest musical influences in my life because of the simple depth of what he was teaching. Beloved, beloved, truly beloved man.
3: Perte, parce
1: que Tony Allen il est unique. says Tony Allen was unique. He played like a demon. It was incredible. His age could not diminish his savoir-faire.
4: Son savoir-faire.
1: Before Oumous Sangare, we heard from Damon Albarn, Angélique, Kiccio, Jeff Mills and Yemi Alade, just a few of Tony's grateful collaborators and admirers. Our guide to the life of Tony Allen is a man who knew him in a very special way. My name is Michael Veal, I am a professor of
5: ethnomusicology at Yale University, a musician, a bassist, a soprano saxophonist, and leader of the Afrobeat jazz band Michael Veal and Aqua Ife. A lot of people know me because of the biography I wrote of Fela Kuti, with whom Tony played for 15 years. Around 2000, Tony contacted me through a friend, he wanted to know if I was interested in co-writing his autobiography. And uh, I said yes, because I think Tony Allen is one of the great drummers of our time. Tony was living in Paris, where he'd lived since the mid-1980s. So I basically lived off and on in Paris for about five or six years, going over for two months here, three months there, two weeks here, six weeks there,
1: between 04 and, let's say, 08. Tony Allen, an autobiography of the master drummer of Afrobeat, came out in 2013. And it is a fantastic read, a journey through a life like no other. One interesting thing in Tony's biography is that
5: his mother was Ghanaian and she was a Ga and Eve speaker. And Tony's father was a Yoruba speaker from Abeokuta in Nigeria. And so he kind of grew up in this dual heritage, culturally speaking. And of course the Yorubas and the Eves and the Gaz, those are three very prominent drumming cultures in West Africa. And so Tony grew up in the midst of all of this, and it really shaped him musically. And he's speaking all three of those languages.
6: I was born in Lagos, and I wasn't intending to play music at first, you know. I had to go do something my parents wanted to do. I was a radio technician for about four years on my company, you know. And while I was doing this, you know, I used to crawl the nightclubs, you know, club crawling. In the night, in the fifties, late fifties. This job, you know, I was fed up with it, you know, because I got a teacher to teach me how to play drums. He just taught me for about one month and he left. I took up with a band called Alaya's Band and um I found out that it's not working. Like I play in the night, I have to wake up early in the morning to go to work. I stopped the band, faced my job, and about four years later, I developed more interest in the music. Anyway, I just stopped the job and I said I want to play music now. You know, and I played my first band. I was playing clefts in the band, playing the sticks for about nine months. We were playing highlight.
5: That was the big popular dance music in Nigeria and Ghana at that time. Nigerian musicians like Victor Olaya and Eddie Okonta, Cardinal Rex Jim Lawson, and of course Bobby Benson. And so there was a lot of dialogue and interchange between Lagos in Nigeria and Accra in Ghana, the two hubs of the high life scene. One binu, wao, one Sassy, wow, o lori ya re o ma she gbono ya ba re do mare abinu eni ko le pa ka
3: daraba shika shika eto ma fisha
1: Tony Allen played clavistics sticks in the band we're hearing now, Victor Olaya's Cool Cats. Love it. By the way, Fela himself started out as backup singer in Olaya's band. But that's another story. Here's Tony.
6: After the drummer of the group left, because I used to play drums when he was singing sometimes, they just put me on the drums. They said, no, we don't have to employ any other drummer because you play good drums anyway. That's how I started playing my drums, 1960.
5: tell you who brought the first drum set into Nigeria, but if I had to guess, I would guess that it was the High Life bands. E.T. Mensah in Ghana toured Nigeria many times during the 40s and 50s and 60s. That's generally considered to have laid the foundation for Nigerian High Life. E.T. Mensah had a very important drummer known at that time as Guy Warren, who's subsequently known as Kofi Ganaba. Now, Kofi Ganaba had spent a lot of time in the U.S. playing jazz or learning jazz. He was socially friendly with Duke Ellington and Max Roach and Charlie Parker and people like that. So he really bought that jazz concept of drumming into high life. And if you listen to those E.T. Mensah records from the 50s and 60s, you can really hear that the drums are back there doing something.
1: Commercial drum kits had only existed since 1909, so this was still quite a new thing in African music. Typically,
5: in ensembles, you would have a battery of percussionists all playing different instruments, bells, drums, shakers, scrapers. It was a new thing that you could centralize all these parts under control of an individual musician. And so the drum set begins to acquire its own identity in African music at that time. Tony, coming up in the High Life era, fell under the sway of great drummers like Guy Warren, as well as the local Nigerian drummers. It's a long list of people
6: I like the solos, you know. And later, Blue Notes started coming to Nigeria. Al Blakey, uh, Evan Jones, Max Roach, the usage of the hi-hats. Those are my idols. I love their drumming a lot, 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 lot. I discovered Jazz Messengers, led by Al Blakey. This one. It's different. Completely different from Jim Cooper. He it talks, he's a talker. When he solos, his solos are African. They like telling the story. And that's what I love of him. And I say, oh, this, I want to play like this guy.
5: you got virtuoso drummers emerging they're not just keeping the beat anymore but they've got a lot of chops and they're playing all this technical stuff and all this very creative imaginative interactive stuff max roach and kenny clark and philly joe jones and all of the drummers of that generation, and then the ones that came after them in the 60s, like Elvin Jones, Art Blakey, and Tony Williams. So Tony was hearing all that, and of course, they were also importing those Blue Note records. And you know, there was a time period in his adolescence when Tony was basically working as a DJ, and they wanted to hear high life and they wanted to hear jazz. was remarkably rapid. He sits down at the drums to relieve the other drummer. When the other drummer leaves, instead of the band finding a new drummer, they just let Tony stay on the drums full time. And from that point on, his drumming develops really rapidly. And in many times in uh, the early years when people do things like pay him more than they're paying the other band members, or make special concessions or accommodations because they recognize his outstanding talent.
1: lot of bands in those days, but he hated the business. Stingy rip-off band leaders, fickle nightclub owners. There were times when he wanted to give up music altogether. But there was always someone trying to bring him back. Oh yeah, I'm a band. New one, Blah 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 blah. You want to come
6: and play? Is it me? No. I ain't playing nothing anymore. I don't want to hear anything about music. I said, because this job is a crazy job, you know. (laughs) You just find yourself jobless somehow, somewhere, sometimes, without you committing any offense. I let him go that day. Then three days later, he came back again. I said, okay, let's go give it a try again. And then from then on, I never stopped now.
1: And it was around that time, in 1964, that
6: Tony met Fela. Him, he arrived, he wanted to play jazz, you know, and... uh, He met other drummers before me, and those are good drummers in the the country at that time. He met the first one, he said, it's not good. He met the second one, it's not happening. He met the third one. He said, oh, it's a pity that no good drummer in Nigeria. So when he was saying, this the bass player, is playing in the same group with me. told him, no, 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 he said, it's a good drummer, you don't know. He said, who is this one? So he said, his name is Tony Allen. Father, you know, he was working at the radio. He was a yeah. presentator of jazz programs. So he went to the radio house and I set up the drums and everything. He took his trumpet and he asked, can you play Trevor Blues? I said, yes. And can you play solos? I said, yes. And he just put me on a trial fast, you know, and immediately concluded. I said, oh, yes, it's true. Have you been to the States before? I said, no. Have you been to London? I said, no. You mean all what you are playing you from here? I said, yes. Ah. So that was it, you know. So that was jazz. Jazz. We were playing jazz for about one year, you know.
1: But the audience was not there for Fela's jazz quartet. So the band went back to high life. But now, with a big band jazz twist, they call themselves Kula Lobitos. Lobitos being Spanish for little wolves. Hmm. It's
4: high life time. Morning
5: time and jump for joy at this swing club
1: his brand new quiz that breaks the quiz He's got the beat He's got the hit It's our lifetime In 1969 Fella took the band to Los Angeles and they ended up spending months there That's where Fela famously tuned into black power politics and began to see his music as the weapon of the future. For Tony, LA was also important, but more for musical reasons.
5: Frank Butler was a very well-known jazz drummer in LA and he befriended Tony. You know, they used to practice together and he showed Tony a lot of tricks, how to loosen up his wrists and how to develop his independent coordination and how to develop his dexterity. And so basically, LA is when Tony Allen's drumming style just took off like a rocket. Now, he was already great, but once he got that last infusion, he just went beyond.
1: returns to Nigeria, renamed as the Africa 70, and they start to release the most musically powerful recordings of Fela's career, like this one, Fefe na efe.
5: He's just exploded into greatness. He and Fela were like linked at the brain, despite whatever else may have been going on with the business. They were totally in sync with each other. That's some of the greatest drumming, in my opinion, that's been recorded since World War II. I mean, it's jazzy, it's funky, it swings. It's got the overtones of traditional African music. It sounds totally hip and slick, but at the same time, totally rootsy and even a little bit traditional. So that was when Tony just achieved his glory. The way he's playing the hi-hat cymbal is very loose, like a jazz drummer, and with the bombs and the accents, but it's very funky, like one of James Brown's drummers. It sounds like something Clyde Stubblefield would play. And the, the line that Fela wrote on top of it, the horn line, and the way Tony interacts with the horn line, you know, that kind of line, you know. It's got that swing.
6: That's how I was from day one. I worked for that. I always say that, that I want my drums to sound like orchestra. I want my drums to sound like piano, you understand? Piano has many notes and chords. So that's how I want my drums to sound.
5: The key to understanding that is The drummer is just a partner in the percussion section You got the congas, like the rhythm congas You got the lead congas that are playing interjections You got the chequere, you got the claves They're all playing this matrix of parts And the drummer is riding on top of it Pushing the music when it's time to push it Pulling it back when it's time to restrain it Simmering, you know Pushing it again, break it back down, simmer Tony was a master of that He's got this bed of percussion that he can just kind of ride on top of and interact with and interject with. Now later in Africa '70, the music tightened up. Basically, as Fela became more in conflict with the authorities, the music started to really tense up and it reflected all of that. And so then you get stuff like "I Lock like Bone Clothes," you know.
1: Alak Bonclos, Fela Kuti, and Africa 70 with Tony Allen on drums. Well, now, hardcore aficionados will debate exactly who contributed what to Afrobeat in its prime. But one thing is sure the musical connection between Fela, the composer, and Tony, the rhythm machine, was as deep as it gets. But, as so often happens in bands, business eventually got in the way of art. As Fela's political ambitions grew, there was less and less money for the musicians. And in 1978, Tony Allen had had enough.
6: I was fed up. Tired. Tired just because of many things happening around that I couldn't handle anymore, you know. And Fela, you know, is my friend. For the friendship to continue, I prefer to leave. Because if I stay... It's gonna be too much hypocrisy business, you know, like, I don't like it and I'm there with it, you know, it's not good. So I prefer to leave and then we are friends
5: just like that. You know how it is when you're young, you're a kid, you got a best friend, you do everything with your best friend and you guys are inseparable. And then something bad happens, maybe takes your girlfriend or you take his girlfriend or something that just puts an irreparable split between you guys. So now you kind of hate the guy. But at the same time, you got all this background of stuff you did together and fun you had together and adventures you had together and all this amazing music that you made together. So you can't really destroy that bond. It's just that the bond has become more complicated. So they kind of intertwine in and out of each other's lives for the next 20 years until
1: Fella passes away in 1997. Coming up, the kaleidoscopic solo career of Tony Allen. Hey, be sure to visit Afropop.org for transcripts of interviews in this program and so much more. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRX. recorded four albums with Africa 70 under his own name. They were very much in the classic Afrobeat mode, but at least one of them signaled Tony's ambition to move on. The title is Progress.
4: hard worker is looking for progress. You can achieve progress in many ways, either by luck or by hard
5: working. If you happen to be the lucky one, you can ride on. It's your time. Progress.
4: Life and good health So as to achieve progress Progress is what I'm looking for
6: Progress is what we're looking for
1: With progress. Not long after Tony parted with Fela, he moved to London, where he befriended French producer Martin Messonnier. Martin was deeply involved with Juju Maestro King Sunny Ade at the time, and Tony played on a track on King Sunny Ade's most heavily produced album ever Aura. Michael Ville says that Afrobeat had become an important influence on international juju music.
5: Oh, yeah, I mean, the whole equation they did was to take Afrobeat and mix it in with those juju songs. That's nothing but straight Fela and Tony. I mean, that's straight Africa 70. They even play some of Fela's melodies in there.
1: In 1984, Tony completed his first post-Africa 70 album, NEPA.
6: NEPA. Never expect power always. And you know NEPA is Nigerian electricity power authority, but because the electricity doesn't happen, we name it NEPA. Never expect power always.
1: Hear changes in the music, more electronics, unison guitar lines, not unlike those in Kingston, His band, and melodious vocals. In 1985, encouraged by. Ma- Tony moved to Paris. Before long, he married, had three sons, and began a new career for himself. Over the next 15 years, Tony worked with all sorts of groups, large and small, and experimented with trending styles techno, dub, and electronica, including this album made with Niam Farrell, aka Dr. L. Here's Cycle on the Bus.
6: We don't want to fight, we don't want to fight no wars. Push a man. We play Afrobeat. Yeah. It's Afrobeat in there. Afrobeat, Afrobeat in the 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000.
4: Yes.
1: from Psycho on the bus. Tony Allen arrived in Paris at a time when life for African immigrants was taking a turn for the worse. And it was a pivotal moment for popular music as well.
5: He went through a few years of struggling pretty heavily in France because the vogue at that time was basically to use drum machines. This was the period of the mechanization of popular music and that affected the African music too. And so, you know, Tony would record these great tracks, and then the producers would either wipe the tracks or use the tracks to trigger some electronic drums. And for someone who's a great drummer, you know, it was a very demoralizing time for him. In fact, it was a very demoralizing time for drummers around the world. And that went on several years until mid-late 90s, when finally his second career begins to take off with recordings like Home Cooking, Black Voices... Those were two very important early recordings that he made with um, members of Parliament Funkadelic like Gary Mudbone Cooper, um, Michael Clip Payne, uh, I believe Bernie Worrell, the, the genius keyboardist might show up on a couple of those recordings. So these were all basically Tony using his Afrobeat drumming style as like a canvas on top of which it would be very atmospheric dubby production.
1: black voices
5: by the time I met him he was touring incessantly all over Europe touring the United States pretty frequently touring Asia he played on a reunion island in Japan he played in Israel Istanbul and this is when he was approaching his 70s or was in his 70s
1: I don't know how he kept up the pace during his Paris years, Tony collaborated with a who's who of African artists, including Relema, Yuma Sekela, Angelique Kidjo, Umu Sangare, and on one of his final recordings, Afel Bokoum of Mali.
3: Muhammad. <laughs> Nen hu fai um job yer ko ni sawar hala pen tur wasa bo karajuma sori arjuma Kahdari si ribana, Muhammad, si rib Muhammad. Sangkaan Boyo Iko Na sore na gwa barka Na sore na Ali Hassan Hasan Masata jo igarna porun jor courier ko Dajer year when you anoni and anoni target.
1: Wow, that's wonderful! Sunrise music from Afel Bokum with the Tony Allen Swing. One of Tony's most interesting late life collaborations was with British rock maverick Damon Albarn, who, by the way, co produced this Athel Bokum album, Linde. Damon's rock band Blur was formed in 1988 and as their popularity grew, Damon was spending a lot of time at the Honest John Records, an eclectic shop where he acquired an education and a deep passion for popular African music. Then, in 2000, I wrote this song
0: called Music is my Radar by Blur. And as little did, I know how uh, prophetic the words were, but I said Tony Allen got me dancing in the song. And that literally appeared on his radar. He got in contact with me and said, would you like to collaborate? So uh, I met him at a studio on Top Court Road on Drunk Night, and uh, that was the beginning. I mean, he was like a completely different kind of musician to anyone I'd ever met. Immediately, I could sort of sense that he had a magic about him.
1: that in that studio he joined Tony in a little bit too much indulgence and ran into a problem common to many Tony Allen collaborators. I couldn't on the
0: night come up with something concrete because
1: I couldn't find the downbeat. So I took it
0: away and then I worked on it and uh, he really liked it. And that was the beginning of our, uh,
1: our relationship. In his autobiography, Tony says that song was the best track on the album. So the feeling was mutual and many, many collaborations followed over the next 18 years. Let's hear the song that started it all, every season. 2003 album Home Cooking, the song Every Season, featuring Damon Albarn. Damon, coming from a rock background, makes no bones about the challenges he faced playing with Tony, the rhythm master, the man who could literally band the time continuum. Believe me, sometimes you got suspended between his hi-hat
0: and his downbeat, or anywhere in those three, the hi-hat, the snare and the bass drum, if you got caught somewhere in there, you could get lost and literally lose your mind, cast out into a parallel universe waiting for Tony to pull you
4: back.
1: Later on, Damon and Tony collaborated in a band called The Good, The Bad and The Queen. Now, the music came more from Damon's side and Tony was fitting his style into music very far from jazz
0: or Afrobeat. I think that's why we love working together, because we both forced each other to look at things differently.
1: Let's hear some of the song Three Changes from The Good, The Bad and The Queen. The last time we met Tony was at the Apollo Theater in New York in 2018, when he performed with the Detroit electronic musician Jeff Mills.
2: I uh, first became aware of Tony's work with Tala Kuti, probably in my teen years. I started off as a musician, but I kind of moved into DJing in the late 70s. So at a time when music was not broken into categories and special styles. It was pretty much a broad ocean of music, and you just kind of had to kind of swim and find your way to what you really needed to have. And so, as a DJ then, finding something that was more beat-oriented was one of the things that DJs most looked out for. Works where percussion and drums were the primary element that everything was based around.
1: Jeff met Tony in the final years of the drummer's life. Tony had hired a studio and was inviting musicians in to jam and see what happened. A week later, they recorded the album we are hearing
2: now. Tomorrow comes the harvest. And it was all done pretty much in real time. It was a very unique way to record music. We would be in the control booth and, and, you know, nobody was really in a rush except for me maybe. (laughs) And then one of us would slip away. I think I went first and I just worked on some drum patterns and some things in the machines. And then once I was done, I called Tony in to listen to it. And then, you know, if he liked it, he would get behind the drums and he would play and then the keyboard player would come. So the whole album was pretty much made in that way.
1: Jeff said they spend a lot more time talking about music than actually playing music.
2: For instance, he would explain that he's often asked by journalists, where is the beginning of the pattern that he's playing, like where's the one, you know? And he would tell them that the one is everywhere. It's where you imagine it would be. He allows the skins on the drum to work. Where he allows the rebound of the bead on the drumstick to roll against the skin to generate sound. You know, you know, to hit a drum, you can do that in so many different ways. So it was it was really fascinating to to watch him. There was the act of striking the drum, but then there's also the motion in which you're going to strike the drum. And there is where you get you know, uh, certain rhythms where they're very swung or very late, just slightly ahead of the tempo. He had a whole encyclopedia of how that could be done. He could drum roll in so many ways that it would never sound the same.
1: After that concert with Tony and Jeff Mills, we told Tony how amazing it was that he collaborated with so many artists in so many styles.
6: The point is that that's what I am. You know, I just hit bottom. I get bored very easily. <laughs> Not about anybody, but about myself. And you know? also, in that case, the only way is to get myself involved in other things that I don't even know who they are, you know, wherever they're coming from, you know, it's just, I like to collaborate with people. It makes me improve on my own side.
1: In the end, Tony Allen came back to jazz, recording two albums for Blue Note, The Source, and also a tribute to one of his idols, Art Blakey.
5: This goes back to the days when he and Fela were trying to play jazz on Lagos Island, playing for little parties and social events, playing uh, small band jazz in the style of Miles' is Kind of Blue, or Horace Silver, or Lee Morgan. So it was very beautiful to see him come full circle like that. And uh, it brought out the jazzy overtones of his playing that we hadn't heard since the years he was with Fela. Fela
1: for pop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. And from PRX affiliate stations around the U.S. And now more than ever, thank you for supporting your public radio station. Thanks to Michael Veal, Jeff Mills and Damon Alborn for their help with this program. Visit Afropop.org for transcripts of interviews we heard. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for world music productions. Research and production for this program by Banning Air. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, including radio programs and our Afropop podcast series. Our chief audio engineer is Michael Jones. This program was mixed at Studio 44 in Brooklyn by Zubin Hensler and recorded at the syncopated lair by GC. Benninger Air and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our director of new media is Savion Biggs. Our director of development is Mukwe Wabeis Yolwe. And I'm Georges Collinet.